Good morning, Daylighters. I think I shared this clip years ago as a pastor, and it's partially because if there was ever a contest to see which movie you could quote most effectively, it would be Breakfast Club for me, for sure. Look, I can see you getting all bunged up for your parents making you wear the kind of clothes they do. But face it, you're a neo-maxi-zoon-dweeby. I mean, what would you be doing if you were not making yourself a better citizen? I mean, I can, like, step by step, I can go through the whole thing. But it ties into this father concept that we talked about last week, and I'm going to carry that over a little bit this week. But at our staff meeting, you're, you're probably wondering why there is food on the screen right now. And it's as a reminder to me that we were at Ida Pita for our staff meeting this Monday. And I was debating a couple different sermon topics and said to our staff, you know, that I'm, I'm thinking about doing this topic. And, and the topic was how to listen to a sermon. Like, sometimes we're not very good at it. Sometimes we're so critical. Or sometimes we come in with our own preconceptions. Or sometimes the sermon's just lousy. How do you listen to a lousy sermon? Or what do you do with that? And I pitched this idea to him, and it was like, well, that would be fine. <laughs> like, no, nobody liked the idea at all. And I said, well, I've got this other possibility. And as soon as I mentioned it, as soon as I started talking about it, it was like, yes, yes, yes. And they started making quotes that I started, I started taking notes. And it just started flowing. And, and so it, start, it all started to eat a pita, and I blame the staff. If you don't like the sermon today, it's their fault. I had a much better sermon prepared, but they nixed it on me. And it dealt with one of the questions that I've received. And we have this question text line that we encourage you to send in, too, if you have questions about philosophy or theology or science or sexuality or whatever the thing is that you wonder about that you'd like a pastor's perspective on, I'm, I'm open to either talking about it from the pulpit or addressing it one-on-one -on -one and having lunch together. But one of the questions I got was, how do I stop feeling guilty about things I both do and don't have control over, or at least distinguish what I should or should not feel guilty about? Or should I recognize guilt as something else? Is it empathy? Or is it anxiety? And as soon as I mentioned it, I, I, I saw the word shame in this question a lot. When you start talking about question, guilt that leads to anxiety, or, or is it anxiety, or how do I process guilt, and so forth, for some reason the word shame popped up. So when I mentioned the word shame to my staff, they just jumped on it and said, yes, that's what you've got you've to talk about. And so I've been doing a little extra research this week on research is, a, is the wrong word. I've been doing some reading and watching on the topic of shame and came across Brene Brown, which many of you would be familiar with at this point, and at least one person is very excited about. <laughs> Brene Brown is a professor and a researcher and an author, and she, she specializes in the topics of vulnerability and shame and guilt. And she did a TED, or not a TED talk, a, a presentation years ago that was recorded to be put on YouTube. And she talked about vulnerability, and she was very vulnerable herself in the presentation. And afterwards, she was telling a friend that she was terrified of this, this vulnerability talk being put, posted online because she said, she said, what if 500 people see it? It's possible 500 people could see it. And if that happens, my life will just be over. At this point, 50 million people have seen that presentation on vulnerability, and it launched her, the trajectory of her life and the tra traje trajectory of her study and career and her writing. And, and she's made a big difference in a lot of people's lives by being vulnerable, by stepping up and, and sharing her guilt and her shame and feelings about guilt and shame and processing those publicly. But she says this, she says, shame is an epidemic in our culture. We've just been through a pandemic, so we can kind of relate to the idea. But shame is, in some sense, kind of a disease that destroys. And it's, it's communicable. It's, you can catch it from another person. And it's something that needs to be dealt with. And so, so what I did was I wrote down a bunch of stuff that my staff said and that I said during that conversation, and I just want to elaborate on it. I want to throw it on the screen and talk about it. 
And so the first thing that was said was, I said, well, well where do you start? When you, it was funny how it derailed our entire staff meeting, and this is pretty much what we talked about for the rest of the meeting. But the first thing that was said was, it's a lie. And it was kind of like a bada-boom, bada-bing moment. Like, like, okay, so it's like that old Bob Newhart sketch where the person comes to her, her therapist and he says, stop it. And that's the end of the meeting. Like, it's a lie. Boom, done, finished. Okay, we're done talking about shame. But we're not. And so in some sense, when we, when we talk about shame, there's, there's this idea that you should just not accept it that it just doesn't belong in your life, and that there's this feeling that, that, could, that it ought to be simple. But then when it's not simple, then that compounds the shame. And so, so added to that was it's a lie, but how do you convince your heart it's a lie? How do you convince your mind it's a lie? How do you, it's, it's easy to say it's a lie. It's easy to say stop it. But how do you process that and work through it? And I received, I, I communicated with the person who wrote our initial question, this question, about how do I stop feeling guilty about things I both do or don't have control over. Because I wanted clarity about what this person was asking about. And I've also asked for permission to share some of our conversation and communication since then. And this person is a pediatric palliative care nurse, which this is a person on the front line of human suffering. Pediatric palliative care means for young children who are passing away trying to give them dignity in their last moments in life, and that's what this person does professionally. And so when you, when you process that with this questions of how do I stop feeling guilty about things I both do and don't have control about, it takes things to a new level. And this person was talking about the, the conflict with their job and how there's, there's two people in her area that, that do this, this particular job, and one of them got really sick, so it was left to them to, uh, to cover for the other. And so if, if a child had a tube that needed to be adjusted, it was left to this person to, to make it happen. And so they, they had to be on call 24-7. And it's really hard to be on call for 24-7, whatever your job is, no matter what your job is. And then when there's so much suffering and mental anguish involved and so much dealing with people who are suffering and in mental anguish. And so this person was hunkered down for an evening, had the, had the night off watching a movie and got a call. And there was this feeling of, oh, why do they have to interrupt my only time off? Oh, why can't I get some rest? Why isn't there somebody else that can cover for me? There, there, there was this feeling of, my job is calling and I don't want my job to call. But then there was also this sense of, these parents are going through the worst situation that a parent could ever go through. Why can't I be better for them? Why, why, why can't I want to go help? And ultimately, this child passed, and, and, and I, I asked for permission to share this, but then there were feelings of, and you, they call, there, there's also some survivor's remorse built in, I'm, I'm sure, and this is, this is a hard thing for me to confess, so I think it would be hard for them to confess as well, but there was feelings of, that's one less person I have to watch out for this week. And I think, I think all of us can register with those feelings, all of us can register with why a person would feel that way, and we can also register with like the, the inner sense of what's wrong with me buried in those questions and those thoughts. I think we can all relate to this person. And, and I, think, I think if there's any, any person that we could have compassion on is this person. I think if there's any person we could say, I get it. What, what you're doing is really hard. And, and their, their job is very, very valuable. But it comes, 
it comes with a cocktail of confusion as to how, how responsible am I? How responsible do I have to feel? How do I have to feel about this when it's, when it's in some sense, a J-O-B? In some sense, you show up, you do the job, you, 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 you comfort, not on a script, but you know what you're supposed to do, and you help the family, and you help make the children's passing as comfortable as possible. But can we all see how this would just be a cocktail of guilt and shame and emotion? And you may not deal with those specific things, but you can, you can relate to, I wish my job wouldn't call, and why couldn't I be better at my job, or whatever, whatever the thing is. And so, it's really, it's very, very challenging to convince, you can imagine this person's situation, how hard it is to say, it's okay for me to stay home and watch a movie tonight. Like, how, how impossible is that? And part of what's so difficult and challenging about this conversation is that the, the foundation of this conversation is kind of healthy. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, don't you think if you're, if you're going to operate as a palliative care nurse in general that you, you should be asking these questions? I mean, to be a person of compassion, it's, it's important that you're saying, how do I respond appropriately? What, how do I balance self-care and other care and so forth? These are, these are important questions. And so when we talk about shame, we don't want to just say it's a lie as in, there should be no shame. Because there are some people without shame, and people without shame are not people who are thriving. I saw a person throw a pack of cigarettes out their car window this week. And I want to say, how's that working out for you in life? Like, like, like the mentality behind that, that simple action, how, how's that working out for you in your relationships? How's that working out for you in your job? And my guess is not very good. And, and, and should there be, there should be guilt there should be a sense of being ashamed. But we're gonna, we're gonna talk about the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is, I did that thing I shouldn't have done, or what I felt or thought was inappropriate. Shame is, I am inappropriate. I am wrong. And so there's a difference between action and identity that we wanna talk about. And so, scripture's very clear that, uh, boy, I hate when I say that, I'm so, that, that, that phrase just buckles me nowadays, and so let me, let me back, back it up a little bit. Scripture is pretty indicative that sin is a real thing, that bad behavior is a real thing, that wicked thoughts and ugliness and selfishness is all kind of baked into the system. And so it doesn't mean that you should never, be on, that you should never feel shame or you should never feel guilt, because... Processing guilt is actually a very healthy thing that we'll get into in just a moment. But it says, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. First John tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Second Corinthians says, we have renounced shameful ways. So whether it's throwing garbage on the, on the ground outside or whatever comparable thing that you've done or you do or you are, whether it's not folding your clothes and putting them away when your spouse has specifically asked you to please, do you see what I'm saying? We've all, we all live on this spectrum somewhere. But there's also call centers around the world where people set up with their headsets on and they scam the elderly all day and take their money, take well-earned money out of their accounts and leave them with nothing. This is a different kind of thing. and So, th so we don't want to pretend that there isn't such a thing as proper, healthy shame. But what we want to do is 
kind of kind of deal with it on a on an everyday kind of person sort of basis is that we all are guilty. All of us are guilty, and all of us are guilty in a sense of stuff we've done, stuff we've thought, stuff we haven't done, stuff we haven't thought. And we're also guilty of just being kind of weak and frail in some sense, and that's the Greek word hamartia for sin. It encompasses all that stuff, and we all have sin. But how do we deal with it without it becoming our identity? One of our... Uh, one of our staff members said this, said it's a lens, but not one, like one you can't look over. It should say you can look over, that's my bad. Like glasses, it's all encompassing. So, so it's like a lens that you look through, but sometimes with glasses you can look over them. With shame, they described it as kind of something that wraps around you. And when, you, when you've embraced sin or bad decisions or bad being or bad circumstances as your identity, it starts to become the lens that you look through about everything. It's an all-encompassing thing. It's a, it's a thing that controls you. And it's really, it's really, really hard to avoid a sense of shame. We think things like, I should have responded better. Has anybody ever thought, maybe I should have responded better in that particular situation? Mm-hmm. I can't control myself. Probably another lie. Maybe not. But it's something we think is, I can't control myself, so why am I like this? I hope nobody ever knows. I could do more. These are, these are thoughts that you could easily get wrapped around. And this is the kind of voice, this is, this is like the voice of shame is, I'm bad. I did bad, therefore I am bad. And it, we, we all do bad. We all have bad thoughts. We all do, we all respond inappropriately. And so we have to find this place where we allow ourselves to be human. But we don't just limit it to circumstances, this idea of shame. How many people think they feel shame because they're 40 and single? Well, they have been or currently are dealing with addiction. Or their marriage isn't exactly what they thought they were, would it, that it should be. Or their third marriage didn't go the way they thought it should. And the word loser shows up a lot in, in shameful circumstances. What, what we would describe as shameful circumstances or thoughts that we have that we would describe as shameful. And we start, we start to, do you see, when, when your marriage isn't what you thought it would be, there's the, the thing, which is that the marriage isn't what you thought it would be, that it's difficult, that it's challenging, and that you do contribute to that in some sense. Then there's the shame of loser. Which one is it? I don't know. I'm such a loser, I can't even remember which ones. You get an identity attached to it. You never got your degree. You are boring. I have a friend who really, really suffers and struggles with this concept that Everybody else seems to be living the TikTok life, the Instagram life of being well-traveled and well-versed and educated and so forth, and rock stars in some sense, and doesn't feel like a rock star at all and just sees himself as a bore, sees himself, his life as completely uninteresting, and so he would attach that L possibly to, him, to himself. And it encompasses your heart and mind, and it also encompasses your soul and strength, which is the holy quadrifecta is a word I just made up. Heart, soul, mind, and strength is what we're supposed to love God with. And so when, it, when shame enters your heart, I'm on my third marriage. Shame. I feel that. My mind starts to feel it. It, encompasses, it, 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 it works its way into your soul, and then it affects your ability to be strong. It affects your ability to do or whatever. My kids don't talk to me anymore, or they talk to me much less than they, I wish they would. And so instead of heart, soul, mind, and strength being dedicated to God and being something that flows out of you, it starts to become like an implosion. 
of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And this is not the thriving that God desires for your life. He desires for something completely different. And so, so when, when all these things start to compile and all these things start to add up, and you see that, that some of these, all of these in some sense, there is some guilt probably involved. There is some volition involved. There is some action involved. None of us are perfect. And so whatever the thing is that brings you shame, probably you did feed it somewhat. It doesn't mean you fed all of it, but probably you do have a part of it. But then when it turns into, I feel bad, I think bad, I did bad, becomes I am unwanted, I am unloved, and I am unworthy, we have a problem. And it's really challenging because your mind can say, well, I know I'm loved. I know, I know I'm worthy. I know, I know I'm these things, like in my brain, but we go back to the question, how does your heart process? How, 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 do, how do you move from head knowledge to soul? to strength, that I am worthy, that I am loved, that I am needed, that I am desired, that I am seen. How does that happen? It's part of what we brought up as a staff. And I recognize that for, for people watching online and in this room, there's some people that this, this doesn't quite gel with you. Like, you're in, a, you're, you're in a pretty healthy place as far as your self-identity. It's, it's a pretty uncommon thing to be that person, but there are people like it, believe it or not, that they don't walk around consumed with shame all the time. But I, I would like to recommend that, one, you recognize that this is, a, this is the epidemic of our world. This is an epidemic of our world. And so even, even if you feel healthy, even if you are healthy in your mind and your mentality and your soul, that puts you in a good place to feed somebody else. So it's important that we hear this so that we recognize that those sitting near us aren't necessarily in the same place we are and so that we can, we can be helpful in some sense. But then also, it shows up in a thousand little sinister ways, and one of them is performancism. And so you might feel really good about yourself, but it, you might be feeling pretty good about yourself based on your performance, which is also kind of unhealthy. Is Andrew, you have to win, win, win. We will not tolerate any losers in this family. Your intensity is for crap. You didn't say crap, but I, I'm the pastor, and so that's as far as I stretch things up here. If that's, if that's your mentality and, and, and you're, you're buckling up to be not shame, not shamed, that's unhealthy as well. And so it's a topic that we should, we should dedicate some time to, and as, as Brene Brown talks about it, it's the swampland of the soul. One of our people said it's something that you can get really early in life. As a child, you can be introduced to shame, and that shame can create a cascade, a spiral that affects your entire life. There's, there's this lyric from Lori Chaffer of Waterdeep. She says, soon it will be hammered into what she calls her silly head, that she really isn't silly, but she's beautiful instead. And I heard her introduce this song one time talking about how there was a girl she knew who was about 15 years old and the entirety of her life she was told that she was clumsy and somehow being told that she was clumsy her whole life actually turned her into someone clumsy. Like, like she embraced it as an identity and so, so she happened to become physically clumsy because of an emotional or mental thing that was planted in her. And as a child, if, you're, if your parents or your teachers beat you down, didn't encourage you, didn't lift you up, it can, it can cascade. This is Hart Hall, where I think some of this started for me. I've been very open about my daddy issues, and performance is, is hard for me. It's, it's a hard thing for me to grapple with. And a lot of it happened right here in Hart Hall when I met a campus pastor for the very first time. And I had reached out to this campus pastor, and 
I'd said, I think I might be going to hell and I'm pretty uncomfortable with that and I just want you to pray for me. And he came knocking on my door that night and we became good friends. And, and in some sense, some of the best things in my life happened as a result of that relationship. But in some sense, and I've shared this very openly, some of the worst things in my life happened as a result of that relationship as well. And one of the things that happened in that initial conversation at 11 o'clock at night in my dorm room in Hart Hall, the sixth floor, room 602 right there, is he looked around my room and he said, I know what the problem is. And I said, what's the problem? And he pointed to my Guns N' Roses poster on the wall and my Ozzy Osbourne poster on the wall. He says, you can't listen to that stuff and expect to be close to God. There's a little, there, there may be some semblance of truth in that moment, in that what you consume definitely affects the way you see life. And the voices that you plant in your head definitely change the way you think. And changing the way you think changes the way you act and changes the way you feel and so forth. But what I don't remember ever hearing in that conversation is, you are the beloved of God. Don't be scared. Now let's thrive. Now let's look at some of the symptoms. Now let's look at some of the underlying stuff. But instead, the music I listened to became the foundation for why I was a bad person, why I probably actually was going to hell, and the steps that I needed to take in order to get out of badness and into goodness. Instead of, you are good, you are created beautiful, now let's walk in that. And it's just a different mentality. And it's something that can catch you very early. It's something that can catch you as a child, as a youth, and run circles around you because shame and judgmentalism are circular. Trained in judgmentalism is trained in shame. And I don't want to spend too much time here, but judgment begets shame. This is my King James coming out of me. Shame begets judgment and so forth. And I read somewhere this week that shame and judgment are ride or die. They come together. And the chicken or the egg, who knows? I tend to think it starts with judgment, and judgment produces shame, and then shame produces judgment and so forth. But let's look at this. And this kind of ties into the question that was sent in. If you think to yourself one night, I don't have the energy to help. That's a statement of fact. That's a truth. But then something gets plugged in there that turns that truth into something very ugly. It's, I am unhelpful. If I don't have the energy to help, then I am unhelpful. And do you see the disconnect that happened? Do you see that it might just be reality that you don't have the energy to, to help, and that doesn't make you unhelpful, it makes you tired. But instead, judgment comes in. Judgment into the facts starts to corrupt and bring shame. And then I am unhelpful is something's wrong with me, and then why can't I get it together? Okay, I'm going to try really hard, and you see that trying really hard really depletes you and starts you back over in the circle of I don't have energy to help. This whole thing cascades and becomes a spiral. And you push it way, way down until it bursts forth in some really unhealthy way. And these are all things that came out at our staff meeting that I took quotes on. Renee Brown says this, she says, shame is highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders. And what do you think these things breed? More shame. See, shame, isn't, shame is not a journey you want to go on. But then she said this, which, and, and this is shown in studies, this is, this is scientific, that people who feel shame and who, who can't who can't process guilt appropriately, that it end up in shame. They, they can't process the thing, but instead turn it into identity. It turns into stuff that doesn't help you thrive. It turns into stuff that destroys. 
But the studies also show that recognition and proper processing of guilt does the inverse. People who can recognize guilt, see guilt for what it is, process it appropriately, tend to be healthier people with less neuroses, more thriving people, less stress, less anxiety, because it's a blocker and a spiral. One of my staff members talked about how it's, it's well known that, that identifying an emotion is really a powerful in being a human that thrives, that, that when you feel angry, you're able to say, I feel anger right now. When you feel sad, you're able to say, I feel sad right now, and to point at it and say, this is, this is what I'm dealing with, and to deal with the thing in, instead of making it bigger than it actually is. But they said shame was a blocker, and if you're going through the tunnel of depression, for example, or the tunnel of anxiety, or the tunnel of anger, or whatever the, the thing is that you're trying to process, shame is there to stop that. It's to, it's to stop you and keep you in depression, or keep you in anger, or keep you in anxiety, because now, not only are you feeling and dealing with anger, you are angry. You are anger. It is part of you, and it's inescapable, which keeps you from processing. And so shame, shame is not a helpful tool. So I've got a few quick tips before I close this up. But one is that you need to name the thing, not you. So whether it's, I'm 40 and single, or whether it's, I responded inappropriately in this situation. I could have responded better. I am too tired to help. You see, I am too tired to help. That's fine. Name it. Say you're tired. Walk through the tunnel of tired. But don't allow it to become a tunnel of unhelpful. And there's something to naming it and not you. Sarah Strange said this week, she said, I was talking to her, and she said, if someone had taught me this, see it, name it, confront it as a child. You see, you can, be, you can be taught the opposite early. But she said, if I had been taught this as a child, it would have been more important than learning to read. It's a very important skill to be able to name it and address it. And we're, while we're talking about names, so I am boring. Might be the thing that you feel shameful about. You look at everybody else's travels, you look at everybody else's relationships, you look at everybody else's, the way they're prospering, their finances, their jobs, and you think, whatever, whatever the thing is that puts the big L on your forehead, you can say, I don't have a job that excites me. But that doesn't turn into, I am a loser. Because I don't have a job that excites me can turn into, let's do something about this. Let's move, let's make, let's continue. I am a loser will keep you in a job that you hate forever. And so it's so important that we learn this skill. When it comes to naming ourselves, there's only one word. And there's this song by Ramsey Schick that I've shared many times in here because it's one of the most powerful, awesome lyrics I've ever heard. But she says, it's the, it's the woman who was caught in adultery, facing off with Jesus, who stops her, her, her killers from killing her. And she says to him, who are you? What is your name? And Jesus says back to her, unashamed. And that's your name too. So if you're going to name yourself, name yourself something the way God sees you, which is human, loved, adored, valuable. I encourage you to tell it to someone. Shame doesn't like talking about shame, and vulnerability is not weakness, and that myth is profoundly dangerous, Brene Brown says. It's very important that when you're, process when you're angry, when you're feeling lost, when you're feeling confused, when you're feeling like a bore, when you're feeling whatever the thing is that brings you shame, it's important that you find somebody that you trust 
and you say it. Because here's what happens. We're scared, scared, scared that vulnerability will make us look weak. Andrew, you've got to win. You've got to win. You've got to be the best. We don't tolerate losers in this family. We think that about all of humanity. But what you find is almost always going to be empathy. Almost always you're going to hear two beautiful words when you share with someone else. And those words are me too. Almost always. Now, there are some jerks out there, and those people need to face off with guilt. So if, you fa- if, you, if, you, if you're vulnerable one time and you get burnt, don't give up on humanity. Continue to tell. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then take it where it belongs. That passage I read recently or earlier about I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong is preceded immediately by this. It says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Every now and then, as a a pastor prepares a sermon, they just hit a home run and they know it. It doesn't happen very often, but last week, this was a grand slam. And I say that because of how it, I don't mean the sermon, I don't mean my public speaking. It was this illustration that has affected me so deeply. And I tried to show you a video of my son Judson swimming, and I'm going to bring it up again because it's an illustration I want to embrace and feel forever. And I want you to embrace and feel it forever, too. I think it's that valuable. So here he is. So that's how my son does what's called, Judson does the freestyle, and that is not the freestyle at all. That, that's a kid trying to kind of swim and then thinking, oh, I'm running out of air. I got I to gotta kick for a while. I got to breathe. And I just see myself in him. Like, that's how I go through life, and it's probably how you feel going through life sometimes. Is I'm, I'm not doing the perfect stroke. I'm not beating everybody else. I'm not winning all the time. I'm not, this isn't a glorious moment, but instead I'm just kicking and kicking and kicking and trying to survive, and we all, we all feel that way a lot of times, but... I'm, I'm thinking from the perspective of a dad and a proud dad and a loving father looking at him in that situation. And I'll tell you what I don't scream as he's swimming. Judson, you've got to be number one. We don't tolerate any losers in this family. Win, win, win. That's not what I'm saying at all, is it? And when he gets out, do I think, Judson, you were disqualified for the eighth time because you can't do a stupid freestyle. Is that how I am towards him? That sounds like the devil to me. And, and wh- wh- whether you mean the devil is a personal entity or whether it embodies wickedness and shame and ugly, doesn't matter for this conversation. But it sounds like the devil. And do you see that this is the voice in so many of our heads? And for, for so many of us, it was planted there by people of faith. For so many of us, it was planted there when we were children. This is what I think God the Father sounds like. He says, I see all of you, and I love all of you, and I'm with you all the time, and I want to see every part of you thrive, so I bless every part of you. He says, I'm at the pool, I'm in the pool, I am the pool, I'm all around you all the time. You don't have to be scared. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. It's good, it's good, it's good. Now swim. 
You see, he doesn't, he doesn't say, keep throwing your cigarette butts out the window. He doesn't say, keep processing the call center that's scamming people. He doesn't say, keep acting inappropriately in relationships. He doesn't say any of that. But the foundation is not, you are bad, you are bad, you are bad. Fix it. It's, you are good, you are good, you are good. See it. Be it. Walk it. And so it goes from being unwanted and unloved and unworthy to wanted, loved, and worthy. One of my favorite passages of scripture is at the end of this the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus tells a story of a son who left his father and ran away and came back. And it says, so he got up and went to his father once he got his head on straight. And it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him and said, we don't tolerate any losers in this family. Shockingly, Jesus did not add that to this story. It in and in fact, it doesn't end there. It ends with, I got my most valuable robe. Let me put it on you. I got a ring. I want to put it on you. We're going to throw a party. We're going to, we're going to sacrifice all we have to throw this big party and a feast because my son has come home. That's the God we serve. That's the God that sees you when you're struggling to swim and struggling to breathe.